everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you are staying safe, healthy, and sane in these strange times. Today is another week of quarantining, and it seems states and countries are slowly opening up, but I don't know if that's the best idea without a vaccine. I guess we will have to wait and see. There's only a few more weeks of teaching in the semester for my university, and after that, I don't know what's happening. Things are out of my hands regarding that. Anyway, for today, I've got a special interview with Del Marie Hamilton, an interdisciplinary artist, writer, and curator. Dell has a BA in journalism from Northeastern University and an MFA from Tufts University. With roots in Belize, Honduras, and the Caribbean, Dell frequently draws from the personal experiences of her family, as well as the history and folkloric traditions of the region. In addition to her performances, Dell works as a curator for the Hushkin Center for African and African American Research. I first encountered one of Dell's performances in late February at the Hood Museum in New Hampshire. Titled Blues, Blank, Black, Dell's performance took inspiration from Toni Morrison's novels combined with stories of police brutality on black and brown women, all this while within the context of an art museum. I was able to connect with Dell after the performance, and that's how we ended up talking for the podcast. By the time we recorded, it was just as the COVID-19 shutdown began in the U.S. For some reason, the audio quality wasn't the best through the internet, and the audio skips a few times, so I apologize for that. I did my best to fix it post-production, and I hope it isn't too much of a problem. Throughout our conversation, Dell and I talk about the tension between body and property, nationalism in museum spaces, and how oral traditions are not static. I hope you enjoy this. It's been good. Like I said, some thinking through some of the challenges of Zooming, but also to trying to remind myself to just, yeah, the news is going to be uncomfortable to listen to sometimes because it's just, it's so much information to try to process. And so one of my tools for trying to work through this kind of chaos is to turn off the news. Yeah. So right right after I got off my other call, I decided like, oh yeah, I need to turn this TV off because yeah. I can't I can't listen to this press conference because it's just too much information. And as much as my brain wants to consume and find out where things are, I realize like there's moments in which you do actually have to try to set some boundaries. And I think myself and some of my other peers are dealing with that, particularly that Again, it's it's a pandemic and we're trying to work from home, but in many cases, we've already kind of set up a lot of boundaries between how we work with students, how we work with peers, and the whole working from home thing is a blurring of that boundary. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that's also one of those things that's creating some anxiety for folks. I didn't know that you taught. What, what are you teaching? Where do you teach? I'm you? not teaching this semester. I had been booked to teach a class on curatorial practice. Oh, nice. So um, to come in and do like a workshop with students. Most times I'm asked to do artist talks, 
But earlier in the year, I had also gotten an invite from a faculty member at BU who wanted to know if I could come in and do a workshop on performance and to try to think about different ways to talk about my work in teaching performance. And so what I was talking about with this colleague just a few moments ago was about the fact that I had to try to, I had to decline. Once things went virtual, I ended up having to say I couldn't do it. And so, and so I was just kind of talking through some of those challenges for me. And so thinking about the cognitive dissonance, trying to teach via a screen and many of my, again, mentors and colleagues and so forth, they're muddling through, but I was okay with saying, nope, I am too scared to try that Yeah, and try to work through a screen. I'm an artist who works and thinks through their body, as you know, because I do performance, mm-hmm. but I'm also really aware of my body when I'm making photographs, when I'm painting, yeah. or I'm drawing, yeah. or I'm writing. And so our bodies pick up so much information when we're in the room with one another. And so you're kind of feeling, you're feeding off the energy that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so that became quite clear to me when Stephen Colbert um, was trying to do his monologue, like from his home and there's no audience there, there, right? And it's just like, okay, these jokes are not funny. There's no energy between I you know. and the screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so having things mediated through a screen, I just, I figured that, that out for myself. I didn't have language for it until like today, but realizing like, I really can't work through that kind of cognitive dissonance. So yeah. conversations are fine. I've been kind of muddling through those things. But again, I'm so aware of the fact that that absence of not being in the same space with someone yeah. and realizing just how much I miss, you know, seeing friends and family in, in person. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been, like I said, it's been really challenging. So yeah, I was okay with saying like, nope, I'm too chicken shit to try to teach a class. So, um, but yeah, so in talking, like I said, with my other colleagues and, and friends and things, yeah, they are, they're getting through it, but it does pose a lot of challenges and they're, but they're also acutely aware that, you know, students need what they need and they've never been through this either. So they're, trying to adjust and be patient and yeah. those kinds of things. But it's, it's, yeah, this, this is something that none of us really has a playbook for. Yeah. So you just kind of, you know, just be really kind with yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that I've been thinking about that a lot because I've been having to teach with my students and right. a lot of those, especially at the university, there's not much choice. Like you have to, you have to teach, right. You know, exactly. so. Um, exactly. every, everyone has like a weird thing to figure yep. out, like especially teaching studio classes. How does one do a studio Perfect. class online? Yeah. How do you teach sculpture? Yeah. Your, your <laughs> I just don't understand. Luckily, I don't. But I, I know a few colleagues who've had and I'm just like, yeah, I don't know how to even. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. yeah it's, it's definitely a skill. So. Yeah. And then I have I've definitely had a couple friends just post on social media like, hey, you guys, don't get too good at teaching online because maybe they just phase us out completely. But right, this is like, but that's where our brains are at this point because we're like, what is happening? Yeah, why, yeah. why is why is this even happening to us? This did not have to happen. I know. Yeah. So that's what's the again. It's just like yeah. I think also too. I think being artists and writers and intellectuals. Like we think we can fix it with our mind. Yeah. And so I'm kind of in that space still as well, like reading, you know, as much as I can about this virus and how does it behave and all these kinds of things. And so it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, I know. Um, in regards to your work, I was curious, where'd you, where'd you grow up and how did art enter your life? 
Mm, yeah, it's a good question. So I was born in Spanish Harlem in New York and then lived there till I was about eight or nine. Um, my mom and dad split up. And so my mom had a lot of cousins here in the Boston area. And so early 80s is when we moved from New York to Boston. After that, it was a lot of summers back and forth in New York, spending time with my dad and my cousins there. Yeah. Oh, my mom would be like working here in Boston. So I've always kind of had these two homes. And then I would say like, I'm again, also kind of something I only figured out recently is that my interest in art has existed for a really long time. I just didn't know that I was an artist and I didn't know how to get the ideas that were in my head out of my head. And so my undergrad is actually in journalism. And I've since I've identified as a writer for a really long time, like that made sense to me because throughout middle school and high school and even in elementary school, I was always writing and making up stories and all those kinds of things. And then in undergrad, I had to take a class for photojournalism. It was back in those days in the 90s, they kind of taught you everything. So graphic design, photography, all yeah. that kind of stuff. And when I was learning the the medium of photography, I realized that I was someone who thinks in pictures. And that is to say that like when I'm reading a book with no images, I'm actually making images in my head. Mm-hmm. And I I just, I didn't think that was special. I just assumed everyone could do that. So it didn't seem like a big mm-hmm. deal to me. But what I, as I continued to learn the medium of photography, I realized that I could merge my conceptual thinking and metaphor yeah. into an image. And so it's during that process in undergrad when I realized like, oh, this is a new medium that I can use to think about how to navigate the world and try to understand the world. And so when I, by the time I was thinking about trying to switch my major, major over to photography, I was already so far into my co-op program at Northeastern. Uh-huh. So it just didn't have the kind of flexibility by then to then switch gears. So um, after undergrad, I continued to take photos and take classes and things like that. And then for a little while, I was taking drawing classes um, like at you know the Cambridge Adult Education Center and realizing that, oh, I have another way of storytelling through drawing. And yeah. so through that process of kind of little by little making increments and sort of thinking through how my brain worked, I realized like, oh, you know, I've got some, all these ideas, but how do I execute them? Um, What happens if I try to go to school and get training um, and try to think through how to do that? And so, yeah, I went back to school in like my mid to late thirties. And so I started an MFA program in fall of 2008. So just as Obama was being ushered into the Hmm. presidency, he actually was elected on my birthday. Wow. On November 4th, 2008. For me, that was a really good kind of omen. And so I really enjoyed my graduate experience at the SMFA. Just and the fact that I was able to work through different kinds of mediums. And that also kind of taught me a lot about like where my strengths were and where my weaknesses were. So yeah, it was a really productive time period for me. So, you know, since then kind of I guess the rest is history. But that's sort of where things came from working through different ideas intellectually and then but also to like trying to think through my relationships with my family and sort of how they you know my mom and dad you know grew up in Honduras and trying to work through these different ideas around race and ethnicity so I just kind of felt like wow this I've got some material to work with how do I figure out some of that stuff out what are your parents response to you becoming an artist 
That is a good question. I remember when I first told my mom. When was, um, when was that? When so that you... was like probably that was like the the probably like the summer before I started class. So that was like 2008. When I was working on my grad application, I didn't say anything to anyone because I <laughs> I didn't really I wasn't I didn't really think I was going to get in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't I didn't think I was going to get into a grad program. I thought maybe I'd do like a one year post back because uh, okay. my because yeah. my undergrads you know in these other like in writing and research and yeah. journalism and you know with this training in in photography. So I just figured like I'll just have to like take some baby steps through this. I got really lucky in terms of the recruiter who was um, recruiting for the SMFA at that time, who's also an artist. He's a colleague and friend. His name is Colin Washington. Oh, nice. Yeah. When he saw whatever, what I showed him, he was like, yeah, no, you need to apply for the MFA program. I'm just like, what? Like, be quiet. Like, I I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, We we all need someone to push us along. Yeah. And so he pushed me. And so I got into the program and I got a scholarship to attend. And so, yeah. So I remember when I told my mom this, she, I, you know, I told her I got into school, got into this art program, got a scholarship. And she said, Oh, okay. So yeah, I want to, um, can we talk about your brother again? Like she just kind of like jumped right over that. She just, it didn't. Because she was, because she was nervous or she didn't want to confront it or. I think she didn't want to confront it. I, I think that she didn't think that it was, anything like real. Oh. <laughs> um, I think that's what was in her head. And I remember when I told my dad, he was like, you're not going to quit your job at Harvard, are you? And I was like, no, I'm going to work out like working part-time and a flex schedule. He was like, oh, okay, good. And so that, I think, it, I mean, in his mind, what he has said to me is that he's always wanted me to be an attorney. Okay. Um, <laughs> he, you know, I've been told, you know, by my parents, I was, I was difficult to parent because I was re- really argumentative. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and to this day, I do like kind of going that kind of discourse going back and forth with people. But over time, they've become a lot more supportive. So my mom has seen my work in person. And she came to my first solo show last January in 2019. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. So she was really excited, like, you know, and she was like, wow, you know. It's, so re- it's was, real now. It's real. It's yeah. real. People came to see my, yeah. my daughter talk about her work. It was amazing. Yeah. And, I, and she didn't know how much of the work is influenced by her storytelling. My dad has not seen my work in person. I've sent him some images and, and articles mm-hmm. and things like that. So I think for him, it's still not actually real. <laughs> um, I think probably like once we get through this pandemic, whenever there are exhibitions again, I guess I got to work on trying to get something in New York. So yeah. you can actually see it yeah. in person. But yeah, they're they're both cool with it now. As I think from their perspective, even with my dad, even though he doesn't know what my work looks like, he knows that I'm happier as you know, in terms of how I approach my life now. So that's, that, those are still really good things. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to quickly talk about the transition from undergrad to grad? Cause you still work at the, uh, the Hutchins Center for African and African American research. And, and you also mentioned it as you were working right. there part-time while you were going to grad school. Yeah. That's a good question as well. Yeah. So I started working at Harvard fall of 2003 and I got into, I, ended up getting a job there through a program called the Administrative Fellowship Program. And so as a pipeline program to bring in African-Americans as well as other folks of color into higher ed administration. And I had applied a few times to different projects, I mean, different um, positions at Harvard and never got a call back and so much as an email or anything. 
And when I got hired there, I was hired as an events manager. And prior to that, like right prior to that, I was working in an independent theater and producing a theater project with a really dear friend of mine who's a composer. And so you but, stuck around oh, the Boston area after undergrad. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I stuck around. I got, I've gotten really lucky in terms of jobs. Like most of my jobs, I have not gotten through like applying through like, you know, the uh, normal channels, the normal channels. Yeah. It's almost always that someone met me somewhere yeah. and they, then they write to me and they're like, Oh, I think you're a good fit for this. Yeah. And so at that time, one of my colleagues, her name is Audrey Tejada, she was working in the department on African and African American studies and wanted to relocate back to Oklahoma. She told me about the administrative fellowship program. She thought I'd be a really good fit for the department and getting accepted into that program. It was a fellowship that lasted for one year and there was some possibility of staying at Harvard, but it wasn't guaranteed. Mm -hmm. But this was a way to sort of get you the experience that you wanted to be at a higher ed institution. And so the first few months, I wasn't sure that I would, you know, survive it. Because Harvard's a really intimidating place. Yeah, I know. Uh, not just for not just for students, um, but it's intimidating for faculty and for administrators and and you know facilities folks. It's just a really complicated world, and it's older than the United States. So is that's the other really. Thing. Yeah, it is because it was, you know, founded in the 1600s. Uh, I didn't know that. Right? All right. So, yeah, so its history goes back further. And so, like, trying to, you know, change an institution, like, you kind of do that at your own folly. But I remember being there and already being knowing a lot about Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s work as a scholar. I just, you know, I couldn't believe how lucky I was to get this gig. And so and he, time, he, run, he runs that. He, yep. He was, he was still the chair at that time. And then, and also was running the research arm as well. And so by the time the spring of 2004 came, they gave me, they offered me a full-time position. And so at that time I was working mostly in events, organizing events and doing PR and communications I, between how I worked with uh, my friend in independent theater and then all my other experience working in communications and at a newspaper, it ended up being a really good fit for working in that department. And then over time, I was promoted to be the assistant director. So that was about like 2005, 2007 or so. And by that point, then I had, you know, staff reporting to me and then sort of, you know, making sure that the machine runs well. But through like a series of kind of like just really kind of crazy family things kind of happened. So my mom got sick. Um, my brother got sick. My doctors thought I had like lupus. So it was just like a bunch wow. of like health things were kind of happening in my family. And I, and I realized at some point, like, okay, I'm just going to ignore what these doctors are telling me. I was having a lot of chronic pain issues and we couldn't really quite pinned down what it was but I remember just thinking to myself like I'm just gonna like tomorrow's like not promised I I'm not gonna sit on my hands and worry that I'm gonna I'll, you know, at some point be disabled by an autoimmune disease. And so I just made it up in my mind that I was going to apply to school and see what happened. And so, like I said, miracle of miracles, I got into the program, but it was, it was one of those moments where, you know, when you, and at the time as well, like my, one of my cousins was killed in a homicide. And so, yeah, it's those moments of kind of like precariousness in your life where you are thinking through like, about the people that you love, you're thinking about yourself, what does your future look like? And then realizing like life is so precious and fragile and it's important to figure out 
who you are and what you want to do with your life. Cause you know, like maybe, maybe there's no heaven or hell or, mm. or Shangri-La someplace. Like maybe this is our only shot. And so it was, it was one of those kinds of moments where again, lots and tons of ideas kind of floating around in my head and then thinking like, okay, if there's a way that I can get some training and figure out how to do that, then yeah. I'd be the way to try to do that. So um, yeah, I find myself very, I think I'm really lucky in that. I, I kind of just kind of like gambled with my future and it paid off, but yeah, it was gambling basically. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious, how was your time at grad school? You talk a lot about your photography. When I saw you in New Hampshire, you talked a bit about it as well, right. but on your website, I don't see too much about it. And I'm curious yeah, where, where yeah. what happened, what happened to it and how'd you make that shift? Cause I also like, I came from like a painting background and I didn't, and I, never, I never thought I would be making videos of myself. Right. So I was curious for you, how'd you make that shift? What about the, um, yeah. What was that sort of like moment for you? Like, yeah. When I was applying to school, I knew I wanted to study at the SNFA, mostly because I wanted to work with one particular artist. Her name is Maria Magdalena Campos Pond. She's an Afro-Cuban artist and works in multimedia, you know, does all kinds of really amazing stuff. And I remember because we organized a conference at Harvard, I got to learn more about her work. There were a couple of a panelist who taught her work. And then we also used one of her photographic images for like the conference program. So I had some sense of where I wanted to study. And I thought, yeah, when I got to school that I'd be making photographs. The first semester there, I think all the photo classes were filled or something. And so, um, but we had to take, you know, this kind of like foundations kind of course, like your first and second semester in art school, it's like, you know, you got to read all the, you got to read the canon, yeah, read all, yeah, the, yeah. Read, mm -hmm. all that read the text, talk so, about it. Yeah. Read all these texts, learn how to deconstruct them, all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so one section, uh, like, so one half was kind of like more about like painting and the history of painting and, and conceptualism. And then the, the second semester, I think, was more about performance. And I, I took that seminar class with a artist whose name is Marlon, um, Marilyn Arsom, who is a this pioneer experimental performance artist. And having, you know, being in the room with her and then kind of going through the readings that she assigned and the title of the of her syllabus was The Body in Art. And mm -hmm. I remember kind of reading through some of those texts and about how visual artists who were ensconced in painting or photography made the shift to the body and using the body as material. And I, to me, that seemed so immediate and it made a ton of sense to me, partly because, again, because photos and paintings can be static. And I was trying to think through what would it be like if I could use my body as a tool. It sounded ridiculous to me when I was reading through, you know, <laughs> reading about the work of like, you know, really amazing performance artists. But I just remember thinking like, huh, this is like super weird. I don't understand this, but it also sounds kind of exciting. Who are you um, reading that what stood out to you? Yeah, it was uh, Chris Burden. Okay, so the, yeah. the, mm -hmm. that, you know, the piece where he has somebody shoot him. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> um, yeah. And then um, artists like Trisha Brown, um, uh -huh. a dancer, uh, a choreographer, uh, Merce Cunningham, John Cage, like all of those artists. There weren't a lot of, there weren't, you know, really any black artists necessarily that she was referring to. Um maybe like one or two. And one, I think his name at that time was Rod Force. He may go under another name by now. But I remember thinking about this notion of, A, the history of the Black diaspora, African diaspora, right? And so there are these questions around like 
body that is, you know, transformed into property that is then a thinking object, thinking property, mm-hmm. and then Black folks having to constantly remind society that, no, we're human beings. We're, we're, you know, this kind of, again, this relationship between like, you know, a body is somehow equal to a carpet or a dresser or something like that. It's again, it's like abstract and insane. And we can never, having never lived through that, there isn't an easy way for us to sort of, again, really understand what that was like. You could read all the history and sort of understand those things from that perspective. But I just remember thinking about that tension between body and property and sameness and difference and liveness and and time. And so, yeah, conceptually to me, it seemed just like a really rich kind of territory to work through. And so then after that, I signed up for whatever the next class that Marilyn was teaching. And I was, yeah. And so that class ended up being like a year long class as well. So what was your first performance? Um, Okay. I, now I remember one of the things she had us do immediately was to think about the use of time and the body. And so she asked us to do an action. At that point, she wasn't necessarily talking about performance art. It was more just about like actions, actions in time and in Uh space. And so one of the first assignments was choose an action that you can do in class and then time yourself while you're doing it. And, you know, each time you stop that task, think about it, write a little bit about it, and then do it again for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I had come up with a kind of a language kind of dialogue that was like in my head for a really long time and decided I would write that out on paper with charcoal. And I figured out that while I was doing that and stopping and starting and sort of then adding in more time that the words were kind of like shifting around on the paper Mm-hmm. And I thought that was super interesting about how language itself is a medium mm-hmm. and that it, it's not static at all. And so from there, I ended up doing a much longer performance, again, writing this language and then kind of starting again by the beginning and then mussing it up again with my body as I'm kind of writing it again. So again, the kind of futility, but again, the, again, the kind of liveliness of language and its relationship to the body. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's how it started. Um, how long was that? How long did you repeat that first action? Um, I think initially I did it for like fifteen, and then I think so that was kind of like maybe like our intro class, maybe fifteen, and then the next time maybe it was thirty. Mm-hmm. I think, and then maybe I added in another ten or fifteen minutes or something like that. I by the time I by the time that class was over, and then I think with our within a few weeks of that particular class, we had to do another assignment I just chose to dig further into that particular Mm. action and so I think the longest I ended up doing it in class was for about 40 or 45 minutes that's that's a long time it's a it's a long time and so we think as well too that we sort of we think we can control time so that's the other thing that's interesting about working in performance is that sure, you've got a set amount of time to do the performance, but still that's like a conceptual sort of social construct that we enact upon time. And so these questions about paying attention to time and also how your body moves in time. So that was super interesting to me. Before I started school, I had actually done a marathon. You did? Yeah. The, the, so full, I, the, the full 25 mile marathon. Yeah. yeah. So 26.2, I, yeah. I did one of those. It was in San Diego. It was crazy. It took me six and a half some odd hours, but I did it. And again, it was one of those things where my doctors were like, 
no, we, you know, (laughs) issues are getting really bad. Like we think you should stop running. And I'm Uh just like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to keep running. And part of it again was through those, again, those, those moments in which I felt like I needed to have agency over my body. And I was going to figure out if I had to live in this body that was constantly falling, you know, falling apart on me, I still need to figure out some way to exist in this thing, yeah. um, you know, and work through these ideas. And I found that through running, that was a kind, that was a meditative process. And that for whatever reason helped clear my head with, particularly when I was anxious about things as well. And I, now, you know, I better understand the science of it and the endorphins and all those things. But at the time it was more about like, no, this is like on my bucket list. Yeah. It's been on my bucket list. So I'm going to do it. I kind of want to do a marathon. I don't know yet. My, my, my ankles has been giving me issues and now I'm like, did I miss my moment? But <laughs> no, you can, it's never too late to do it. You yeah. just have to train. You just have to train really hard. Yeah. And, but it, what that, what that, again, that teaches me is again, is that the body is an instrument and it is, it is the thing that is taking in all this information, um, whether we're conscious of it or not. So by yeah. the time I got to this class and I'm, in, and I'm, you know, kind of doing tasks and incrementing them by time, having already, you know, done a marathon, I had some context. And so those moments in which you're in this state of kind of nirvana. And I, I, I knew what that felt like already. And I thought, I'm just going to keep chasing that feeling. I never um, thought about, I, I never thought of a marathon as a performance, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is. So yeah, so those, those instances of roving and movement and walking, those are things that always show up in my performances as yeah. well. Yeah, so I know some friends who just do um, really um, performances where it's just like one task and they just stay in one space and then they just kind of repeated over and over. I, I found that for me, I have, a, I guess, a certain kind of restlessness in my body. So I need to be moving around and yeah. moving so that like, that's my thing. It's my way of understanding. Yeah. The world. So, yeah, so that's, that's where things shifted into, um, performance. And so that's now kind of like my, my bread and butter. That's mostly what people pay me for. Yeah. Do performances. So yeah. So that's, that's where that shift came right yeah and then I, I love I also loved how it's transformed because I think in the in at least when I was looking through your earlier work it seemed like you were kind of doing performances out in the world and then you're kind of forcing a context in a very specific way but it was also somewhat abstract yeah and I when, when I saw you at least at the at the hood museum what I thought was really fascinating was you were then juxtaposed with this history that was very clear in an institution that was very clear yep and I was curious how that sort of evolved. Cause I was thinking also like when I look at your earlier performance, like I looked at like where else Williamsburg, the, the, your performance for the Carrie Mae Weems in the yep. Guggenheim. Like yep. I saw the documentation, but it wasn't as clear what was going on Sure. sometimes. I mean, I, I, I could infer some things, but I thought like once you're in the context of museum, it, it kind changes. of, it changes so completely, right? Like, because Williamsburg, there's a lot of different things that you could be talking about. I don't know, right? right? But then like, when you're like, oh, okay, this is like an institution, an art institution at a very specific place yep. with a very specific art history, right? Like all those yep. things narrow it in a very beautiful way. I was curious how that sort of happened. Yeah, how that happened. Yeah, so that's true. A lot of my work was just happening out in the world, really experimental. And that I can absolutely credit back to Maryland is, you know, Know, again, kind of engaging with the world and, and trying to create some sort of connection with it. The way I got shifted into museum and gallery spaces was through, like, 
like maybe like within a few months of graduating or being pretty close to graduating, I went to a panel discussion at the MFA and Liz Monsell, who at that time was the museum's first curator of performance art, she had staged an event where three artists, Marilyn Arson was one of them, and then John Gonzalez was a classmate of mine. And then another artist did performances throughout the museum, like on the same day. And then I think right after that, then they had a panel discussion. Now, Magda Campos-Pons, who again is my idol and mentor and teacher, she told me about this performance and said, go to the panel discussion too and go talk to Liz. And I was like, okay, I don't know Liz from a hole in the wall, but <laughs> any, anytime Magda tells me to do something, I just try to do it. It's best if I just do what she tells me to do. And I, and the good thing is that Liz was really approachable. So after the event, I let her know, Magda suggested I come and talk to you. Wanted to let you know, I really enjoyed the discussion. You know, I also make performance art and she's like, oh, that's great. You know, since I'm new in town, I, I want to try to do more studio visits. So then I think maybe a few days of that, she emailed me, asked if she could come to my studio and see what I'd been working on. So she came by, I don't remember how long she was there, but it felt really kind of, it, it was a kind of really easy rapport. And then within a few days of that, she invited me to do a solo performance at the MFA. And so when I remember getting the invite and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what is happening? This is like an institution that I used to cut class from to go to, to go look at art and paintings and stuff like that. So I was just like, oh my God, like, yeah. wait, what? It's, what is it's, happening? It's, it's real. It's real. This is real. I can do this. So, um, yeah, so that's when I did a performance called Columbus Day Blues at the MFA. And I remember thinking again about institutional critique, um, artists like Fred Wilson, who go into museums and interrogate these structures and, and all the objects that are in them, and thinking about how American art, but also Americanism, like nationalism, is also kind of forged in a museum space, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, we know the history of art and sort of this kind of Americanist sort of approach versus, versus what Brits are doing versus what Latin American artists are doing. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting to try to think about how the museum itself is doing a kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it's also placing value on what art is important, what art isn't important. So I thought that was super interesting. And it was also a case of me doing a performance on Columbus Day, which is an open house day where it's free admission and oh. the museum is swarmed with all these people. And I remember thinking about Columbus Day because yeah. it's in November and that's and you know is now celebrated as like World Indigenous Day and yeah. thinking about like huh this is this is not a celebratory yeah the transformation thing. of colonialism boom I was just like okay what what can I do so that's when I started thinking about oh Columbus Day blues thinking about the blues as a musical idiom but also to blues as nationalism blues as also to a kind of way to think about melancholy and loss and grief. And right before that, I had finished up my thesis installation, which was focused on banana republics and Chiquita bananas and, again, colonialism and all those kinds of things. So it, it was easy at that point to do that research, think about that space, and then try to, like, move it into this other direction and do this roving performance. So what did you do in the museum? Yeah. So the what I first started doing is I was, so I was sitting right outside of the cafe in the museum and I was eating browned rotten bananas. 
And then really (laughs) these, these brown, really gross bananas, Chiquita bananas. And from there I had, can't remember if I did it during the performance or beforehand, but I had excised the red strips from the American flag. I had pulled those out, kind of cut them out and Mm -hmm. then use them as sort of like these kind of tapestries and then proceeded to walk near a wall that had a work by an artist and it was all in like black and yellow um and i thought oh that's an interesting set of colors before i do a performance i do a lot of site visits and i kind of think about like how does the work talk to me so at that point i thought i was thinking about again the invisible labor that goes into like managing museums and and presenting them for the world and so i use those strips of fabric from the flag to crawl up along a wall and sort of collect all the dust Mm -hmm. that was underneath that particular mural. And then from there, I went into a space where there was a photo exhibition and it was focused, I think, on women in photography, but I think women in particular in like the Middle East. Okay. And so in that space, I then pulled out those red strips and then I wrote some profanities around Columbus, you know, sailing in 1492, but fuck him. So uh-huh. I left those on the floor and then I burst into song. And so I, I read, uh, I, I sung, I'm going to make you love me by the Supremes. Okay. <laughs> and the reason why I chose that song was thinking about immigrants and folks who are undocumented and who are come to the U S and America to actually figure, you know, to, to kind of have that American dream. Yeah. So there's a kind of love for that kind of Americanist viewpoint and folks come here for opportunities but at the same time too it's sort of like the country kind of inspires a kind of love through its nationalism and patriotism but then also too like thinking about immigrants who just want to come here and stay and build lives and have opportunities and have families right and sort of be included into the American dream. And so there's, from their standpoint, maybe that's a question about love, needing this, this, this idea of America to love you back. And then from there moved into the contemporary art section where there were artists, um, the work of artists whose work I was a lot more familiar with, like Kara Walker. Uh So in front of the Kara Walker piece, I laid down on my back and then pushed myself along the ground. You could hear my body scraping against the floor. And I was doing that while I was singing Yankee Doodle Dandy. Okay. And I just remember at the time when I was, like I said, organizing the performance and kind of writing an outline for Liz, I was thinking about like, oh, what's more, what's more American than like slavery? So that's where the Yankee Doodle Dandy comes in. And then by the time I got to the end of the performance, I had put the flag over me and then I kind of spun myself dizzy throughout the space and it was right underneath one of Tara Donovan's pieces and it was I think the styrofoam ones which is made of a bunch of little like hundreds and hundreds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of styrofoam cups and that that circular shape and so that's where the kind of spinning Mm. top came from so so yeah I've gotten again and I think probably because I've spent so much time in museums since I was a kid that I am aware of the the ways that objects talk to us and how space talks to us. So there was, there was, yeah, there was those kinds of questions. And then, yeah, just kind of thinking through like the way that other artists were, you know, even colleagues and friends, you know, who are architects, you know, thinking about like, huh, how, how, how does a a building create this kind of storyline? How does it move people through a space? Like Mm -hmm. how does scale work? 
So yeah, it's very, it's been very much a kind of evolution, but sort of like starting with one seed and then moving on to something bigger. So what was the reception to that? And how, how's, how's that work been received also in Boston? Because Boston is very interesting, I think, <laughs> relationship to just race in general. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good question. I would say it must have been received well. Normally, with this particular performance, we did not do a Q&A the same way we did at, at The Hood. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that it must have been received well because since then, I had I just kind of kept getting more invites to do performances. And then I, and afterward, I know that Liz, you know, talked to me about wanting to write about that performance. I don't know if that was still on her radar to do, but I ended up, like I said, having a really good working relationship with Liz. And so again, being one of these curators who is generally, you know, genuinely interested in artists and the way that artists think and is really committed to performance art and has, you know, brought other artists of color into that institution. So she's, she's really been, a, I think, a real key player yeah. here in Boston in terms of, you know, curators who are really invested in performance art. So in terms of what I learned from there, that has sort of carried me through other institutions and thinking about sort of like the constraints and using those constraints and then thinking about the possibilities of like kind of removing those constraints. What are some constraints that you... Uh, yeah, you so... Yeah, I would like, so at the Clark Art Museum where I performed last fall in November, there was all this concern about um, how close I could get to the paintings and the sculptures. Mm-hmm. And I it, and, and I, I did a lot of site, site visits before that performance. And at, at one of the site me- meetings, yeah, there was all these questions about like, oh, you can't, you can't stand closer than 10 feet to this painting. Wait, 10 feet? Something like that, <laughs> yeah, which is insane. No one looked at a painting from 10 feet. It's just not, at, the, at least not initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You maybe, you move in closer than maybe you step yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's not static. Yeah. So I was just like, what is going on here? Because the thing is, is that I, I'm not the one who chose the room in which I would perform. They, oh, they, they chose it for they you? They chose the room and they chose this room because it was a very large room. Okay. And it was a room where, I guess it's their most popular section of the museum. Big Abex paintings or something? No, uh, all of the, um, you know, the, the French, you know, painters, uh, okay. uh, you know, um, you know, French artists. So Rodin and Monet, you know, all those Monet. people. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And so I just remember thinking like, well, I didn't choose this space. Like, why are you now telling me I can't engage, you know, but only under these kind of 10 feet away? Yeah. So I just remember thinking about that a lot and trying to think about how could I use that as a, a tool? And what dawned on me is that I could do a kind of institutional critique. Mm. They, and like I said, they asked for it. They set themselves up for this by putting this constraint in my you know, in my way. At some point they had were, like I said, they were clearly really concerned because they had never had a performance artwork, Mm. you know, presented in the museum. So some of that I understand because I'm also a curator and I, and I work at a very old institution. So I, I understand how difficult it is to get institutions to move, you know, past where they think they should be or what, you know, But I remember sort of as I was formulating the piece the night before, I started to think a lot about institutional critique. And so as I'm talking about these black women who've been killed, you know, I'm also kind of reminded like, oh, that's so interesting. You guys are really interested in this Rodan, but you're not interested in the story about Eleanor Bumpers. 
oh, that's right. You don't want the women artists. You want the white guy artists. Okay. So I kept repeating that yeah. throughout the performance. And so by the time that ended, we did do a Q&A after that with some of the scholars who were attending the symposium. Yeah. Uh, that was part of where this performance were done. They, they were paying a lot of attention and I, yeah. that was really refreshing. They, I, clearly had left them with a lot to think about because their their questions were like, you know, r- one right after the other. Yeah. And then to the extent that, so that was kind of like part one of the Q&A. And then in the two days that followed, some of the grad students that were part of that symposium, they also had more questions for mm. me and how they realized like, oh my goodness, because a few of them were from Williams College and then a, a few of them were for, from Spelman in Atlanta. And they were both, oh my goodness, you changed how I interact with this space now. Like mm. you, you transformed it in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. So again, I, I did my job and I'm told as a result from the feedback that, you know, from these, from folks who attended and who were asking these questions, like, yeah, they were paying quite a bit of attention. And so it, it, it paid off in the long run. But, but, and even after that, one of the contemporary art curator said to me, Odell, I'm so, I'm so glad you did this performance because now I can, you know, this, this gives me an opportunity to try to bring in other performance artists into this space and mm-hmm. to try to get, move this institution into the world of contemporary art. So I was like, Oh, that's great. I'm a facilitator. I have done my job. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, it was, it was amazing. And each time, even though it's the same performance with each site, it changes over time. And so that is, again, why I'm still very much in love with performance, because again, it's a, it's an active thing and I can't always completely control what's happening because again, human beings, you know, are unpredictable Mm -hmm. um, and, and objects have a history to them. And so again, the constraints are what they are. And then it's your job as an artist to try to figure out some way to, to work with them or work against them or figure out some other possibility. Yeah. At, at Clark, was that, that's where you perform blues, blank and black? Yeah, exactly. And, and that was the first iteration of that? No, that by then I had probably performed that piece about four or five times. Uh-huh. When I first performed that piece, uh, it was in Brooklyn in 2016. And when I performed it then, it was just one character and I was in a corner. Um, could, you, could you just quickly describe the piece so that people... Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. I, I, I saw so, it, but just for people listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, so the piece is called Blues Blank Black. I performed it first in Brooklyn at a gallery called Five Miles. And it's a piece that merges um, Central American folklore figures, as well as the work of Toni Morrison, and then the invocation of Black women who have died as a result of police violence or in brutality. So you know, Tanisha Anderson, Sandra Bland being the probably the most prominent because there's video of her death and of her arrest. So for me, putting together that particular performance, it came out of a larger project of working with other Black women performance artists, most of them based in New York, but realizing that we all had a way of using language and storytelling in our performance practices. And so we organized an evening of performance pop-up performances called Black Girl Lit between performance literature and memory. And Mm. because we were all sort of riffing off of the work of Toni Morrison or um, Maya Angelou or, you know, even oral traditions that we've heard growing up, it was an interesting way to sort of highlight all these different, you know, this kind of broad outline, but then have all these different women artists, like, you know, approach it in all these different ways. And at that time, 
I, you know, between the curating, getting the space, getting the video in place, getting the photographer, getting the booze, all of those things kind of coming together, I didn't have a ton of time to figure out my performance. I had been already rereading the work of Toni Morrison, so in particular, The Bluest Eye and Beloved. I knew I was interested in both of those stories because, again, they're about these women or girl protagonists who are trying to work through trauma in one way or another. There's all this kind of gothic sort of elements and haunting and all those kinds of things. So for me, it was kind of, it was a, it was two texts that I was already pretty familiar with. I had the dress already, the black dress with all the tool. I had some wigs and I had the vellum paper and I had charcoal in the studio. And I just shoved all that stuff into the suitcase and at the time, I, yeah, I remember getting like on the bus, the Greyhound and like, <laughs> I don't even know what this performance is going to be, yeah. but just memorize the sections that you're really interested in, pull those off as, as convincingly as you can and just see what happens. So yeah, I had the, the dolls in my studio as well. So I just, I did like, really like a kind of like, just pushed everything into the suitcase and I figured I would figure out the performance yeah. later. Yeah. So when I first did the piece, it was completely improvised. I'm not, a, I don't improvise my performances. They're like really calculated. I, I just have too many control issues to wing it. <laughs> so that particular night, I didn't have a choice but to wing it because yeah. I was also doing intros for each performance and MC and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, so it, like I said, I had everything kind of on the floor and the names written on vellum paper. I kind of backed into this corner and there was just that one character in the black dress and with the wig and I remember when I was doing the piece, you could hear a pin drop, like no one was talking or reacting. So I had no idea if people uh, were on board. I had mm. no idea what was happening. I just kind of got through the piece. I didn't time it. So I don't know how long it was. It could have been 20 minutes. It could have been 40 minutes. It yeah. could have been 30 minutes. I have no idea because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. But I knew enough to try to, you know, try to create this moment with uh, the repetition of the names and I knew that the space itself had a kind of echo quality so that every time I repeated the name, it, it kept kind of bouncing and sort of reverberating through the space. I had, you know, managed to really memorize the, the texts pretty well in certain sections. I've always have been able to do that for whatever reason. And I just kind of went through the piece. Afterward, people clapped, but I didn't, I still didn't know if people were being polite. Right. <laughs> Because then I just went in the back, took the dress off, put my regular clothes on, and then introduced the next artist. Oh, so I, <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. It's not till afterward, like a few weeks after that, talking to a friend who was there, who I didn't even notice was there. Uh -huh. like, oh, that piece was amazing. It was terrifying, but it was amazing. And I was like, really? Okay. And he was like, yeah, you should, you should do that piece again. And I was like, what? I don't, re I don't reperform pieces. Oh, you actually. don't, you don't normally reperform. No, that okay. was the first time things got reperformed. I did it because I didn't, I didn't quite understand how it functioned in that first version. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, okay, well just, I'll just treat this as research. And so then when I got an opportunity to perform it in Cambridge at the Cooper gallery, that's when it, it kind of evolved into these three separate characters mm. because that space itself allowed for this other narrative to kind of come through. And mm. so, yeah, so that's that's how it ends up being three characters. But in, in each performance, always doing a different thing to some extent. So 
the the objects are the same the passages are generally the same the wigs are the same the names are mostly the same but where and how i respond to the space yeah. and how people respond to me is what makes it dynamic yeah how how has that changed your idea of performance from you performing things non-repetitively or not redoing things and you having to uh, have a piece that you are now returning to over and over again. Yeah. I think for me, what I have learned is that a, I, I can let go a little bit. I don't <laughs> have to control everything uh-huh. so that that way kind of just, yeah. And I mean, Marilyn, Marilyn would emphasize this in, in class as well, sort of like, you know, oh, if something doesn't, go the way you pictured it in your head, just like let it take you in this other direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's also something I've learned from working with Magda and performing with her at the Guggenheim. That piece was performed on a Sunday and it was a, during a series of events that Carrie Mae Weems had organized for that weekend to go along with her solo show. So kind of like this symposium with artists and musicians and scholars and so forth. And, I had not planned to be in that performance. Really? I, I got drafted to be in that performance the night before. And it kind of, at the time I'm thinking to myself, like, oh my God, Magda, like, what are you asking me to do? Like, That's real oh improvisation, right? Were you I, that, yes. also like crazy also performing for a show for Carrie Mae Weems, right? In the Precisely. Google. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing <laughs> is nuts. All of it's nuts. Right. So again, but one of the things that I remember that Magda reinforced for us as we were kind of in the dressing rooms was that you just need to commit, commit to the task, commit to the moment, because the audience doesn't know that you're making a mistake. Mm. They, they don't know what's happening. You're the only one who knows that. But as long as you're committed to the work, yeah. and to the vision and the spirit of the work, then everything follows from that. Mm-hmm. And so it's from working so closely with Magda for the, the Guggenheim piece, for the piece we did at National Portrait Gallery, there was a lot more preparation for that. But with mm-hmm. as with many of Magda's projects, they're really ambitious, but they're, they're generous in terms of the artists that she has, that she brings into the process and enables you to collaborate with her and to think through all of these questions about, again, how do institutions function and how do they tell stories and how do objects and art tell those stories. And so, so much of the way that I work has, yes, has so much to do with, yeah, watching Marilyn and work as well as, uh, which is, you know, a more kind of um, minimalist way of working. And then working with Magda, whose pieces are operatic. There's these, you know, really large ensembles and with all of these different performers bringing something really interesting to it. So yeah, I, I have to say I'm incredibly lucky to have found teachers in grad school who let me do what I wanted to do and experiment yeah. and, you know, make a lot of mistakes and all those kinds yeah. of things. So, and prior to that, I had worked with Carrie May because I curated a small show for her at oh, the nice. Hutchins Center. So yeah, at, at that time, we didn't have our larger space, the Cooper Gallery, which is on the main street level. We have a smaller gallery that's called the Rudenstein Gallery, named for Neil Rudenstein. And 
Carrie May's work, her kitchen table series and some of her other pieces, that was like basically my first curatorial project. It was, it was oh, really, you know, yeah, it was, it was basically Professor Gates saying, Hey Dell, um, Carrie May Wings is going to do a show in the Rudenstein and, um, you're going to curate it. And I'm just like, what? 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 what was that like? Did you like do studios and see all the works and like, I want this, 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 or how's that work? No, not at all. Carrie had us had the kitchen table series and then other pieces that were already, um, not out at different shows at that time. And so she sent me a portfolio of the pieces that she wanted to show. And so at that point, what the curatorial process happened when we were installing the work uh-huh. and deciding what went on what wall. And so working with Carrie through like what the postcard would look like, what the title of the show would be. And then one of our other colleagues is an art historian, Sheldon Sheik, working closely with him about where, where do things go? How does this look? What do you think? Oh no, this goes here now. It looks, it looks okay here, but it looks better over here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's through collaboration is, is probably been my best teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're performing, are you performing a version of yourself? Are you a completely different character? Maybe you don't think about it because when I perform, I try not to think about what exactly I am. Yeah. But some people are very clear ideas about like who exactly they're embodying. Um, right. I'm, just, I'm just curious, what do you see your performances as? You mentioned I, some of your texts, you mentioned ideas of like shamanism and embodying something. I'm curious. Yeah. Right. What are your characters like? Yeah, they are, they're fictional, but they're rooted in some kind of, truth. So like La Sucia and then La Llorona, those are, you know, folk tales that I've learned from cousins who, you know, told, you know, told me, you know, horrifying stories as a kid to scare the the crap out of me. And it just turns out that I, as a result of that, I pretty much only watch crime and horror films. What are, what, what are these stories that scared you? So, um, so yeah, so La Sucia, the, when I first heard it as a kid, it was, um, the, she would, you know, come and steal you away in the night and, uh, you know, abduct you. And so she could eat you. <laughs> it, 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 so this were children who weren't paying, who weren't uh, being listening to their parents. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And what I've, what I've learned since then is that that character shows up in other cultural contexts. Okay. So, so that's, what's also becomes interesting again about storytelling mm-hmm. and oral traditions, right? That, Though that those traditions are also not static, yeah. and that they're they're tailored to a particular time and place in a particular history and social context in a particular geography. So what I've learned over time is that you know the the ideas that I have in my head those are mine, but that there is some give and take that I'm sort of uh, negotiating with fiction and using all of those kinds of tools together. So it's it's very much a, a mixed a mix of things that I'm playing with and, and thinking through. So yeah, I've stopped thinking about like, is it me or is it this other thing? Probably because I've done this piece so many times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to do that. But there there are those instances where it feels like I'm not completely in my body. Mm. I think it's called metacognition. But there's something about at some point, I'm not really in my body and I'm actually observing what's happening. You have an out of, out of body experience? It's something weird like that, where where it feels like I'm, it feels like I'm me, but I'm not me. I've stopped trying to figure out exactly how it works. I I just know that that place of sort of like that high that I would get when I was running, like that's what performance gives me. So I'm Uh. I'm I I think a little bit as you know artists as like addicts, like we're like chasing this thing that 
feels really good when we get to it. And then once that, when that project's over, then we're like onto the next thing, trying to get that fixed. There are definitely moments where you finish a project and you don't know what the next step is. And those moments like that for me as well, where it's just like, I'm just kind of quiet and kind of just process things. But yeah, yeah, there's moments in which it's kind of like, I can kind of feel things progressing to this other place and I'm just happy that I got there. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a high that I'm chasing. Yeah. Well, that's funny. Yeah, Cause I, when I'm performing, I'm always, I don't get that high. I get the high after when I'm like reviewing from the video, what actually okay. happened. Got it. Got it. So yeah, however, however it works. And yeah. what's interesting too is just talking with other artists about the way that they get there as well. Some people are like super methodical and their studio is like really, really organized. My studio doesn't work that way. (laughs) Rain doesn't work that way. So I, I try not to spend too much time overthinking it Mm -hmm. anymore. Like again, kind of just letting the work do whatever it needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the work, when, how do you, how do you see your work in relationship to documentation? Yeah. I've learned the hard way that it's important to have both a good videographer as well as a still photographer Mm -hmm. to document the performances and the way that I learned that that was the hard way is that when I'm trying to do like, you know, residency applications or grant applications Mm -hmm. and and not having the money shot Mm -hmm. in there. And so I, you know, and I'm, again, it's something also too that Magda as well as Marilyn taught me like, Nope, you should document this. I don't care if you're just doing it in class. Like you're going to be sorry that you didn't do it. And in my head, I'm like, whatever, this thing isn't that important. Yeah. It ends up being really important because yeah. it helps me explain how I, how the piece evolved. Yeah. Also too, you get older and you forget stuff, right? That's the reality of like being a human being, right? Like you forget things. And so, yeah, it's so in that, in those kinds of really just kind of practical things, I have learned that it is really important to document things visually as best as you can and as much as your budget can afford. So the good thing is that I get paid for all of my gigs now. And so someone else is absorbing that cost. But yeah, back back in the day when I was still in school and just coming out of school, I was I was lucky if I got a decent two minute clip. Yeah. So yeah, it's I think also too thinking about yourself sort of like your legacy as an artist. Like, you know, when you're gone, like who's who's the person that's my dog that's coming in to say hi. Okay. <laughs> that's why I got noisy for a second. But um, yeah, thinking about like who, what do you want to leave on this earth once you're, you're gone? And, you know, what will you leave for the scholars and the curators and the historians to, to you know, to try to piece together that history for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the reason I asked also is because when I was looking through your, your website, like you didn't leave much and it almost felt like you really wanted people to go to your performance and you actually didn't want much much documentation to be around. So that's why I was curious yeah. about that. Yeah, initially it was. It was just, it was really more about just like, oh yeah, whatever images I get, whatever, whatever I get, whatever I don't get. But mm. as I've gotten more invites to do performances, curators have asked, hey, can you send me some video? Yeah. So as a result of doing this piece several times, I've got a good set of clips. Um, there's a couple other performances that I was really proud of that have also been documented. I mean, editing it is a pain. I just, I really dislike editing. <laughs> it's just it's not yeah. my thing. I, I do it because I have to do it, but it has paid off in terms of particularly, again, when curators, you know, maybe don't have a chance to come and see your work yeah. in person. 
Yeah. Here's a clip and they can get a sense from where the work is, is yeah. coming from. So it pays off later on. But at yeah. the time when you're trying to do art direction for, for your performance, it's kind of like, it's not like the first thing. you're. No. Doing. Yeah. It's the last thing on your mind. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's one thing I think that's interesting, which is about at least all the studio classes I've been teaching, the students have to have good documentation because that's actually all I can grade them that's on. All, yeah, exactly. That's all you can grade them, grade yeah. them on, exactly. So yeah, it's the it's the practicalities of, yeah. of the thing. Yeah. Well, I think I've touched upon a lot of different topics. And is there anything that I missed that you want to chat about? Do you want to do any shout outs? <laughs> any 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 um, plugs anything that uh yeah yeah um no i think more than anything i just want to say thank you for um wanting to talk about my work but also too just thinking about like you know whatever happens with this pandemic just uh, again be well be safe but also too like if there's ways that we as artists can figure out a way forward you know as a result of the moment that we're in i think this is an important time to continue to make work and try to again make sense of of what is happening. So yeah, for me it's it's mostly looking at artists and, and writers and 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 musicians as well, thinking about like how to how to find a way out of yeah. what is clearly quite chaotic. But but yeah, holding on to hope that there's another side to this and 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 some really great work could be created as a result of it. Mm. All right. All right. Thank you, Dell, so much for right. this. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it as well. All right. Talk to you later. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle seeingcolorpod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.